Did she say anything about fresh baked bread? I don't know. Church always makes me hungry. I don't know. Well, good morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm the pastor, preaching pastor here at Midland Free. We're delighted that you've come to worship with us today. We're continuing our sermon series we kicked off a couple weeks ago in the book of 1 John. And before we do so, I have a question for you. I'm assuming most of you drove this morning on the way to church. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you or not, but sometimes it just so happens that when I get in the car after either a long day at work or a long week at work, or perhaps even getting out the door in the morning, and things are all in you know a state of disagreement, and that song comes on the radio. You know that song, right? That one song. That song that was written just for you at that moment and that point in time. Where God seems to be just reaching into your heart and saying, Hey, here's the message that I have for you today, right now, at this time. Listen to this. That's that song. Today in 1 John, we're going to approach this text in sort of an interesting way, I think. Hopefully you'll think so as well. Uh, The theme is this, it's fairly simple, uh, that Jesus is our propitiate and our advocate. If you're taking notes, feel free to write those two big words down and I will explain them to you as we go. Uh, They sound fancy at first, but pretty soon they'll be old hat. Propitiate. And advocate. That is a theme for today, that Jesus is these two main things. Now, the structure in which I'll approach this is basically one, two, three. Uh, One, two, three. Here we go. Very simple. And it is this, what Jesus did, what Jesus does, and what that does for us. So, number one, what he did, i.e., what Jesus did in the past. Number two, what Jesus does, that is what he does right now. And number three, um, what, he, what that does for us. What consequences does that have in our lives? So, Jesus, propitiate and advocate. Now, before we uh, walk through these next six verses, I want to make one thing pretty clear, and it's this, is that uh, usually my intent when I approach a sermon is to keep sort of the main thing the main thing. There's a lot of subpoints and all sorts of interesting stuff in the text that we can chase down all day long, but there's usually a main thought or a primary uh, uh, clause. And today, that clause is in verses 1 and 2, that Jesus is the propitiate and the advocate. And so consequently, I know there's some other stuff in there about um, walking as Jesus walked and obeying the commands and things like that, but we are in an expositional series, and so what happens is, is that command is fleshed out in the next few verses. So I'm not going to flesh out that command today, but instead I'll do that next time we come back to those verses. So the command is walk as Jesus walked, where you're like, how do we do that? Well, it's spelled out for you in the following section. Here's the command then. And so today we're not going to focus on that, but instead we'll focus on the main idea, which is at the start, and that is that Jesus is our propitiate and advocate. 
Next couple of weeks will be a little bit different. Next Sunday is Youth Sunday, so the youth will have that service. And then the following Sunday is Easter, where we'll celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And so consequently, the follow-up, the connecting piece to the command, comes three weeks from now on April 3rd, where we cover uh, these few verses along with verses 7 through 14. So today, primarily verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. 1 John verse 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, in other words, when, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours also, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. So, Advocate and propitiate. I'm going to begin uh, first with the propitiation, which is actually in verse 2. So I'm going to start with verse 2 and then move back to verse 1. And uh, the reason for that is I think it will work itself out in the text, and you'll see here in a minute. But verse 2 says this, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, not long ago, my family had the opportunity to watch a really awesome movie, How to Train Your Dragon 2. Has anybody seen this? Okay, if you have, you'll enjoy it. If not, spoiler alert, I'm going to give a couple things away. It's still a great film, and I, in fact, even think number two is better than number one, which is unusual for most films. But in, here's how it goes. In How to Train Your Dragon 2... What happens, one of the premises in this film is that dragons are sort of uh, a creature of like wolves. They live or exist in a pack. And so there's an alpha male, and that alpha male uh, basically mind controls or directs the entire herd. That one gets dominance and everybody else follows along. And so if the alpha male is doing something, everybody else absolutely has to do what the alpha male is leading them to do. So the bad guy, of course, in this film, his, his plot is to take control of the alpha male, and then he can control the dragons and use them to do his evil bidding. Well, in one scene, what happens is this, is you see the dragons being controlled by this evil uh, alpha male, and all of a sudden the, the protagonist, this little kid named Hiccup, is in trouble. Because what the dragons do is they do whatever the alpha male tells them, and the alpha male is telling them, hey, blast this guy, you know, blast him. And the dragons, you know, they're dragons. They all have their different fire, blue fire, red fire, orange fire, whatever. And when they see something and their alpha male tells them, blast it, boy, they blast it and just, boom, fire comes out their mouth and whatever's in front of them is destroyed. So here's this situation where these dragons are doing what's in their nature to do. They're not necessarily doing anything bad. They're just lashing out against whatever the alpha male tells them to lash out against. Well, in a strange but similar sort of way, 
God, although most of the times Scripture uses a serpent for evil, but let me make this connection, is like that dragon. And what I mean is this. When it comes to evil, God's nature is to lash out against it. That He explodes in righteous fury and anger towards it. So, for example, as you follow that through Scripture, what you'll see, for example, at the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, Moses is coming to this point, and God is like, hey, hang out, hold on. Moses, you are the only guy who can go up this mountain. And I want you to keep everybody way back from the mountain. Because if those sinful people come into contact with anything that's anywhere near me, boom, I'm going to have to blast them. I'm going to lash out against them because I cannot tolerate sin in my presence. I can't do that, Moses. So you make sure you're all prayed up and you're all covered up and you're sacrificed. And then when it's time, you come up and you get ready but keep everybody else way back. Because <laughs> if they don't, I'm going to have to blast them. It's just the way it is. Well, follow that theme and watch. The tabernacle. God sets up barriers and veils because His holiness is such that if a sinful people come in contact with Him, what's going to happen? He's going to blast them. They're going to die. Only the high priest on the Day of Atonement, once per year after going through extremely elaborate rituals to make atonement or covering for a sin, can go in there. Otherwise, and he may not even come out. God's going to blast them. Then when you see, for example, the children of Israel moving the Ark of the Covenant or their symbol of God's holy presence, and all of a sudden somebody stumbles and it starts to fall a little bit, somebody reaches out and touches it to prevent it from falling, what happens? God blasts them. Because holiness cannot tolerate sin. That's the way it is. God is righteous in his character and he cannot accept anything that is sinful. So what happens then, for example, in this movie, is Hiccup has now come into a difficult situation where his friend, who was a dragon, is all of a sudden poised to kill him. And the alpha male is saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. And Hiccup, who, or sorry, the dragon, who is simply you know, a dragon, is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And he opens up his mouth and blast, he shoots out the lightning right at his best friend. Well, it's a movie, right? <laughs> so you know Hiccup's not going to die. But what happens is this, this beautiful scene where what I didn't tell you before is that Hiccup and his father had this long, long, difficult relationship where they didn't understand each other and they couldn't get along and they saw the world in two different ways and they operated in two different ways and everything else. Well, at that point, Hiccup's dad jumps into the scene and pushes Hiccup out of the way and takes on the wrath of the dragon himself. And he dies. And there's this beautifully moving scene where you see, you know, even when father and son, they don't always get along or see things the same way, the love of the father still overcomes the strain in the relationship and sacrifices himself on behalf of his son. Aha! <laughs> you see where we're going here? What happens here in this propitiation is that God the Father throughout the long course of progressive revelation has made it very clear that He cannot stand sin. 
that you simply can't come into his presence. It's completely unacceptable. It's a total defilement to his holy and righteous character. And so if you, a sinful being, come into his presence, he's just going to have to blast you. That's just the way it is. Because he's God. And he's holy. But God loves you and he doesn't want to blast you. And so consequently, in his wisdom, in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son decided what to do about that. And they together came up with a plan where God the Son's like, okay, when it's time to blast them, don't blast them, blast me. And God the Father says, okay, that's what we're going to do. And now you come to this point in time where I'm looking at myself and I'm saying, wow, I'm sinful. <laughs> you know, That's me. I want to go to God, but how can I? It's impossible. He's going to blast me. Well, God, in his great wisdom, provides a way out. And this is what John Piper says like this in his book, Desiring God, in such an eloquent and articulate way. He says, the wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Did you get that? That is absolutely profound. God in His great wisdom, loving us without compromising His holiness or His perfection, comes up with a perfect way to be both the just and the justifier. And that is what the author means when he says then that Jesus is our propitiation. In Romans chapter 3, he says, God put forward Jesus. In other words, God shoved Jesus into the line of fire. God pushed him forward when we were about to be blasted and said, okay, now's the time, step in. And Jesus becomes that propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans then goes on to say, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more will, be, will we be saved from the wrath of God? In other words, Jesus is the absorber. He absorbed the wrath of God himself, making God both the just and the justifier. In other words, like Piper says, the wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. That's the cross. And that is why we call Jesus Christ the payment or propitiation for our sin. Because Jesus' blood satisfies God's just wrath, making it agreeable for us then to come to Him. Now, as I deliver that, I think to myself, well, that is beautiful. And I hope that in some ways you will stop and absorb that as well. You won't just take that as a theological concept to go, wow, that's really cool. Look at how he did that. But instead, you will take that as a personal application that drives you to worship. The response to this is not to go, wow, cool, that's neat. But instead to say, wow. Now, to the King, immortal, invisible, the God only wise, be the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. This is the response of faith. 
So please, whatever you do, when you hear this sermon, don't think, oh, this is the come to Jesus sermon. You know? This is the make a decision for Christ sermon. This sermon is not that. This is the worship Jesus for the rest of your life sermon. This is not a one point in time, single instance, fire insurance, got it done. This is the rest of my life, my driving and consuming passion. This is what gets me out of the bed in the morning, keeps me going throughout the day, and lets me sleep at night. The fact that Jesus has paid the price for my sin. That's a whole different ballgame. Now, the sermon, I suppose, would end really well here if we just stopped. Said, Hallelujah, amen, praise God, let's go. But life goes on, right? Tomorrow morning's a new day and the stuff hits the fan once again and here we go. <laughs> you know? Welcome to a new day. So that is wonderful and that's beautiful and that I have not only to experience now and to look forward to, but what about right now? That is what God did in the past, but what is Jesus doing right now? Number two, what Jesus does now is this. Verse one. John, the apostle, says in a very kind and loving way, my little children, here's where I'm writing to you. Listen, so you don't sin. But if anyone does sin, in other words, since I pretty much know you will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, that's a really cool term. The word is parakletos, which is also used to the Holy Spirit in the book of John. And that may not mean anything to you, but let me flesh it out a little bit. What it is, is someone who is called alongside to counsel or defend. In other words, it's basically an attorney. What this text is saying is that Jesus is your private attorney. If you think of God as a judge, as the one who is looking down on sin and prepared to blast it, then the person who is defending you is the judge's son. God the Father's Son, Jesus Christ, is your attorney or advocate. Now, as you know, I'm obviously not an attorney, but there are a few people in our congregation who are. So I sent out an email this week and just said, hey, fill me in. What does an attorney do? You know, because I have a lot of fun making jokes about them, but I don't know what they actually do. So maybe you could help. What in the world does an attorney do? And what I found out is this, is there are basically two roles of an attorney. One is as a counselor, thus counselor. Two is as an advocate. And the funny thing that I was told that separates them is this, is basically you can either pay a little bit for the counselor or you can pay a lot for the advocate. <laughs> either pay them beforehand or you get to pay afterwards. And what happens is a counselor is going to give you advice. They're going to inform you as to how things work. Stuff that you don't know. Advice on things like estate planning, which is wills, trusts, durable powers of attorney, etc. It's a legal thing. You should get it figured out. Ask them. I don't know. Land transactions. Deeds, titles, searches, things like that. Business transactions. Review of contracts, draft waivers, liability, etc. All these sorts of things a counselor can advise you too. But if you don't take their advice and you make your mistake, then you're going to be in hot water and cost yourself a lot of money. In which case, you need an advocate. You need someone to mitigate the damages. <laughs> in other words, 
lessen the consequences or the results. And so you pay this person to help you out. And if it's in a trial situation, what's going to happen is they're going to need to know everything about you. Your defense attorney is going to want to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. That way, when you get into court, he's not surprised by anything the prosecution's about to say. He needs to know every single dirty thing in your little dark closet because he wants to be prepared for the worst-case scenario and ready to defend you if that happens to come up. And so your attorney has to know everything about you. Not only that, but he has to know all about the law. He has to know all the ins and outs, the consequences, every loophole, etc. The attorney needs to know that. Not only that, but a good attorney also has to have a pretty good idea of how this judge rules. What is the judge's past history? Which way does he lean? What sorts of things will put you in good graces with him? What is this judge like? The attorney should be familiar with the judge and the courtroom. He should also be willing to explain all of this to you. He can't just ignore you, but he has to interact with you and explain it and say, hey, this is my advice, but ultimately you're making the decision, so it's up to you. Here's how I would argue your case in your situation. It's up to you whether you accept it or not. But in the end, this is what I would do, and I myself can never compromise my integrity before the judge or the jury because if I do, then I lose their respect and they'll never believe me in this court again. So I need to know everything about the law, everything about you. I need to be, I'm going to argue this case as best I can, but I'm never going to compromise my integrity. Well, that's a good attorney. And if you are an attorney, it will please you to know that I'm making the case this morning, that Jesus himself is an attorney. He is the best attorney you could have because, look, he knows the law perfectly. He wrote it himself. He knows all the details about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He has a perfect plan for mitigating the damages. He knows the outcome with 100% accuracy. His judge is the dad, so he has a pretty good idea of which way he leans, and he will certainly never trade in his integrity. Jesus is your advocate. You want a good attorney, go to Jesus. And that is a very encouraging fact for us right now. Look, what Jesus did in the past is great, but how that carries into the present is this. Every single day you're going to struggle with something. Whether it's sin or relationship or trusting in Christ or unknowns or sickness or difficulties or whatever, there's going to be a time where you need advice and you need defense. And in that case, what I'm telling you is to lawyer up. Get an attorney. Get a good one. And in fact, his name is Christ. And so you feel the weight of the devil's accusations and the impositions of others' untruths and all these things coming down on you and you can say, whoa, stop. And you take that And you hand it over to your advocate. And you say, Christ, here's my situation. Here's my problem. Can I call you? Yeah, you're the only client I have. Well, how much? Well, I already paid it. You paid for my fees? Yeah, I paid for your fees. He's the perfect attorney. He knows it all and he pays your fees. Unlike any of the other guys, the legal fees are completely covered and he's there and you can call him as many times a day as you want. Now, all you do is pick up the phone and say, hey, Christ, i got a problem. Would you go before the Father and plead my case to the judge? Because I don't think I can handle this. 
You got that? Are you sure? You're sure? You got it covered? Well, okay. Boom. Oh, man, I don't want to call him again. <laughs> I already called him once today. Ring, ring, ring. Hey, can you do it again? Please? Well, are you sure? You got it? Oh, you've never lost a case. Okay. Right. Click. That's a good deal. And it should inspire confidence. When the devil argues against you, who do you think is going to win? Jesus or the devil? That's a rhetorical question. Christ, of course, he has never lost a case. And if you have an attorney that you are inspired by his competence, if he's never lost a case, if you know he's going to win, then you can sleep well at night. You can relax. The burden's off. Christ is before the judge on your behalf. And in that case, you can turn it completely over to him. I don't know. I don't want it. Let him handle it. He's perfect. Give him a chance. So here's your action steps from that. Well, I got one more point after this, but flowing out of this, point number two, Jesus is your advocate. Here's a couple action steps. This week, I bet you that something is going to come up. I mean, no offense, I'm not trying to be a downer, but life is difficult. And something is going to come up where you're going to feel like, ah, this is not good, I can't handle it, it's beyond my control, it's out of my box, whatever. That is the perfect time to call your attorney. Call up Christ and ask him to plead your case. And then when you do, put down the phone. Relax and go to bed and sleep. Because Jesus is before the judge taking care of you. So one challenge I have to you this week is this. If something comes up, I want you to simply say this in my mind. I have an advocate. I've got an attorney. I've got an attorney. I've got an attorney. Let him handle it. He's good at this. He knows what he's doing. We got it. No problem. Just call my attorney. Got it. Something comes up, call your attorney. Something bothers you, I've got an advocate. Got an advocate. Got an advocate. Got an advocate. I'm good. You got an advocate. Point one, just say that over and over in your mind. I've got an advocate. I've got an advocate. I've got an advocate. Number two, here's another one for you. Um, And I don't know what else to call it other than the Father's love. When you look at that hiccup illustration, you see, I mean, it's a pretty hard thing to push your son in the way of a train. And yet that's what God the Father does. He pushes Christ out there for you to absorb the impact. And so what I think is this, it demonstrates a pretty big heart. And so I know as a dad, if my children, like, I know they're going to mess up. This is a third class conditional sentence in the Greek that if it means basically when. So... What happens is this. I know my kids are going to mess up. But I also know their cries. So I can tell when they're crying because they're in trouble or fighting. Or when they're crying because they're really hurt. And my reaction is going to be different at each point. Because if they're just fussing, I'm like, ah, I'll finish my dinner, right? But if I hear a real hurt cry, boy, I... Fork down and on my way as fast as I can. Because that's the love of a father. Now, if it's a real hurt cry, when I get there, I'm not going to ask him, now, did you break that rule I told you not to break? (laughs) I might if it's a fussy cry, right? 
But if it's a genuine hurt cry, I'm going to get to the scene and, you know, even if I told them not to climb the tree and they climbed the tree and they fell out and they broke their arm, I'm still going to feel bad that they broke their arm. And I'm still going to take them to the hospital. <laughs> and we're still going to take care of them. Because that's the love of a dad. And I know that cry. Well, this week, when you come into something, I challenge you just to say, hey, God, I'm hurt. I am a hurt. That hurt. Just admit it. Go for it. Cry. Do what you need to do and just say, man, I am in pain. You may have told me not to do that, and I did it, and that, oh, stink, I messed up, but God, it hurts. Will you please help? And I bet you, I am willing to bet that knowing the love of a father, he will come running to your side. Even if you did something you shouldn't. Because you're hurt. That's what dads do. They run. They jump in front of the blast and they take it themselves. You have an advocate. Say that. You get hurt, admit it. And finally, some specifics on the action. Uh, John chapter 17. uh, This is where you actually see Jesus being your advocate. So if you write this down, I'm not going to walk you through it this morning. Just write down John 1.7. What you will see is that he prays at least six or seven things for you. He is actually in that scene, in the courtroom, before the Father, pleading your case. And if you want to know what does that look like, just go read John 17 and ask yourself the question, what is Jesus asking the Father for on my behalf? What is he asking God for? Read John 17, ask that question, and I bet you'll come up with a list of really cool stuff that Jesus is asking God for you. And then when you go back, you can plead that case every single day and say, Jesus, remember, this is what you're after, please. You said you would. Okay. So, what Jesus did and what Jesus does. He's an awesome attorney, he is a counselor, and he's an advocate, and not just any advocate, but he actually pays the fees Himself, he is the propitiation for our sins. Well, what does that do for us? Well, I've already kind of alluded to it in a couple different places. It gives us peace. Peace. And what I mean by peace is not just um, like, okay, I feel better, but I mean true eternal shalom. What I mean is that which involves worship, it involves comfort, It involves encouragement and the strength to carry on. It is the confidence you have knowing that, hey, I've got an advocate, and when I go to my advocate, he's got me covered. He has all the advice I need. He can answer my questions. He can handle the accusations. And he genuinely represents my interest. He's not out just to make a buck. He wants to help me. And so when I come to that point and I say, okay, I believe in what Jesus did. I trust in what Jesus does. Now what that does for me is, man, does that get me through the day. I mean, that's what gets me up. That's what keeps me going. And that's what lets me sleep at night. When I wake up and something's bothering me and I'm worried about it, I've got to come to the point where I can say, Jesus is my advocate. I don't want to spend these next two hours laying awake on my bed. I want Jesus to take this case before the king and get it settled. Resolve it. Give it to your advocate. 
what Jesus did, what Jesus does, and what that does for us. Propitiation, advocation, and peace. In John chapter 16, right before, right before that John 17, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, you will. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. You know that song? Chris Rice has one, and it goes like this. These are the words. It's entitled, Untitled Hymn. And he says this, Weak and wounded sinner. That's me. <laughs> Lost and left to die. Raise your head, for love is passing by. Now your burden's lifted and carried far away. Precious blood has washed away the stain. Like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. Remember when you walk, sometimes you fall. Sometimes the way is lonely, sometimes steep and filled with pain. So if your sky is dark and poor as the rain, cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus. And then when love spills over and music fills the night, when you can't contain your joy inside, then dance for Jesus. Dance for Jesus kiss the world goodbye. That's us, Lord. That's it. We are sinners. We need help. We need an advocate to plea our case before the King. What you did was awesome. What you do is great. Help us to live for you. Amen. So please stand and let's sing.